Hello everyone, welcome back. Um, I hope you've had a lovely first half term, if not a busy one, um, and now we're on the run up to Christmas. So today we are focused on EAL and assessment. I think it's a huge topic. Um, there's always a lot of controversy, a lot of talk about which way to go with assessment. And as there's no nationally agreed EAL assessment system, it can be really difficult in knowing which way to turn and which assessment system to follow. Um, so Rob, what are your thoughts on assessment for EAL learners? Well, the first thing I think you need is you've got to have good proficiency data. Um, some listeners might remember that around about 2016, 2018, the, the DfV started collecting the five stages of proficiency in English from uh, A, new to English, up to E, fluent, and then dropped it again for complicated reasons. It's still, I think, the most valuable bit of assessment we do with our with our bilingual learners and we inform everything else that, that we assess them on. I think for a lot of people, those stages are now most associated with the Bell Foundation, but actually they're, they're reasonably universal. So if you're not doing it, the low-hanging fruit, easy first step is just get assessing those EL pupils so you know their proficiency in English. And Joe, what do you think about assessment? It's a huge topic, isn't it? I think, yeah, it's a massive topic and it's always one that gets everybody talking and everybody's got an opinion on it. I think from experience, you need to have, you've got to have some kind of baseline assessment so that you can then track how much progress your children are making. So massively important for that. And and schools do that in lots of lots of different ways. Like Rob said, the A to E, that was around and it wasn't. Some schools still use it. I think it's quite quite useful if you haven't you know you haven't got maybe anything else in place I also think formative assessment is massively important as well and I don't think we should lose sight of the importance of that and knowing your children and it's the it's the assessment that you do every day in class and you know every week and all the communications you have with your teachers and your TAs and all the staff in school um you know you know your children really well um and I think the two have got to somehow link closely together and work together yeah, so if we look at assessment systems and sort of when to assess your EAL learners, what's your um, advice on that, Rob? Well, I've got the luxury of, you know, pretty free choice. I don't have to do it every day. So I would, I'd be looking for a system that's really, really robust. And I, there, there's, there's a really important counter to whatever I say now, which is what can you actually practically do in, in a very, very busy teaching day? So I'd be looking at an assessment system that is rigorous so that we know that our assessments actually mean what they think we mean. And for me, you know, this is the what works episodes of the podcast. I want to see the workings. I want to see the evidence. So there are two to three that really, really stand out for me. The Bell Foundation's EAL assessment framework, I think, is the most credible uh, that's currently available. It's backed up by really extensive research that they've published so so we can look into the details. Um, in the US, WIDA, W-I-D-A, WIDA is uh, really popular. A lot of schools use it here in the UK, um, but not, not so many by far. That's also very, very credible. The third one is uh, NASIA. So uh, NASIA have done, I mean, going back years and years and years, long predating the others, and they produce an EL assessment framework. So all of these give really reliable results. And for that reason, I would strongly recommend them. The challenge with them is that the, the interface is less user-friendly. So you, you have to um, 
carry out an assessment with your pupils, it can be a bit labour intensive sometimes. There are other newer ones on the market which are much, much, much more user friendly. So you can you can sit a pupil down, they will um, run through a series of questions and answers, and they'll spit out a uh, result at the end. The problem with that is that number one, they tend to be based on general English, so they're not based on the kind of language pupils need to succeed in the curriculum. So although they say EAL, they're often really MFL structure, and, and they don't really have the curriculum content that makes them genuine EAL frameworks. And um, the ones I recommended do, of course. Um, and and the other is, you know, they're not so reliable. We don't really know if um, them telling us this is student is a bandy or a middle tier or an intermediate or CFR A2. Um, we don't really know if that's true or not or, or or what that means for us. So we've got those two sides. You've, you've got the really robust ones that are often a bit harder to use and the ones that are um, much more user-friendly but perhaps not so robust. And I think I've got my – I'd love to know what Joe's recommendation is. Okay. I think I know where I sit in, in between those two poles. Um, but, yeah, what do you reckon, Joe? Well, from expe- so from experience, I'd agree with Rob. I've used two maybe more than any others um, and they are the same so I've used the Bell Foundation um, quite extensively in a, in a couple of schools and again um, NASIA NASIA was kind of predated the Bell Foundation and so that's an established often an established system that schools are familiar with um, and they've they've updated their their assessment frameworks as time's gone on but I think that's the one that maybe is kicking around schools um, the most so I've used both of those and I found them to be really helpful um, evidence informed and gives me the next steps for the children um, and for the staff which is what that's what I was looking for um, as the EAL lead um, I needed to know where the children were I needed to know where they needed to get to next staff needed to know you know similar um, and they proved effective ways of of enabling us to to assess that and, and monitor that. Um, so they're the two that I've used the most often. Um, and with good results, I like to think as well. They've, they've both been really helpful um, for me and, and my teams working with um, bilingual, multilingual children. And when would you advise, Joe, for people to assess their EAL learners? Hmm. So. so this is always a, an interesting conversation as well, I think. So... Um, you obviously need to, you need some baseline data. I understand the need to have that as a as a teacher and and you know as a as a leader. You need to be able to say where your children have started and where you've you've got them to. So you obviously need to do it early ish on. But I would not go and sit down with a child in their on their first day or even in their first week <laughs> because you know, they're new to the school, they're possibly new to the country, everything's completely new, you're not going to get anything meaningful out of them. And that is not the priority. The priority is that they're in class, they're learning who their teacher is, they're learning their way around the school, they're making friends, they're understanding the routines, I wouldn't touch assessment until all of that is is sorted and in place, because you're not going to get anything um, meaningful from it in the first place. And secondly, it's, it's not it's not the priority for the child at that time yeah so once you've got those assessments in place and once you've started um you'd then continue to track that would you say termly or 
Yeah, I mean, every school, schools have different um, different systems, different things in place. Some schools are, uh, do termly data drops, some schools do half termly. You've just got to go with um, what what you do in your school, I suppose. But as long as you're seeing that they're making progress from one point to the next, you can see what their next steps are and that you can make some, you know, you can set some targets around that or, you know, point everybody in the general direction of this is what this child can do at this point. They've come from here. They've made this progress. We're now here. This is what we need to be doing, doing next. And from there, if you can set set some really specific granular targets with um, clear actions, then there's no reason why they can't can't meet those. Yeah, would you agree, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, Joe's really pointing to the value of an EAL-specific assessment framework. So uh, in this case, uh, Bell Foundation and NASIA, if you look at how their um, framework is set out, it, it gives you loads of statements that are really curriculum focused about things pupils can do. And that really helps you support those fine-grained targets and seeing that progress. I just wonder if I could give a quick shout-out to the uh, Better Bilingual blog. That's betterbilingual.co.uk. Um, because they've got a piece by uh, Bathsheba Wells-Dion, who's the English teacher and EAL lead at uh, Bristol Cathedral Choir School, um, Bristol, where I am, um, who's put together a really simple Google form to um, share with all teachers in the school so that they have got a really quick interface for um, capturing EAL proficiency of their pupils in their classes Um and, and she can then, you know, check that against the against the Bell Foundation is the one she's using. But the idea that that you know these things can be can be simplified in a way that actually every teacher can be having a little check in on pupils' proficiency development really easily across the whole school, hugely taking the pressure off off the EL person to to do all that assessment work because it is a lot if you're if you're doing it termly. Um, there's another school I just want to mention in in Bristol as well. Uh, Blaze High School, where they're really looking carefully at getting teachers across the curriculum, so both of these secondaries in this example, um, to capture the language that they are using in their classrooms with their students and the language that's used in, in what they're supposed to write and read, and and using that as a basis for just helping teachers to understand what good um, language proficiency for EL students means to them in their class. It's actually quite easy. If you, if you know what you're expecting from pupils and you know there's a few key ways in which pupils from certain languages might differ or you might know there's particular, I won't say errors, but features of a pupil's language that you'd see consistently, you can get past some of those surface level things. And, and actually, it doesn't take long for people who wouldn't think of themselves as, as language specialists at all to be able to have a really detailed or really focused discussion around the language development of their pupils. I wanted to mention because, you know, we talk about uh, the EAL team um, or EAL person doing all of this assessment work. And of course, the, the, the holy grail, as it were, is, is that... Um, Everybody is involved in, in some way in this conversation so it doesn't all fall on your shoulders. And, and they seem to me to be two pretty low-tech, low-investment ways of, of building up that confidence across the school that, that's so important. So once we've got the um, data, so once these assessments have taken place, um, how would you advise sort of to record data and what to do with that once you've finished assessing, either how to share it across the school, if it's a secondary school especially, um, 
and what you know what to do with that as a, as a member of staff as well what would you say Jo? Um, so I can't speak from a secondary point of view, but what I've done in primary school is that information is is available to everybody. And like and like Rob said, it's not just the responsibility of the EAL lead or the EAL coordinator to make sure that um, those children are making progress. And sometimes an EAL lead won't have a you know they won't have a class. They're not um, necessarily in class. They might be. They might not be. But whichever class those children are in, that teacher is responsible. Um, for ensuring those children are, are making progress and the school as a whole. So it's massively important that they've all got that information. So if you've got some data or if you've generated some targets, that needs to be something that's shared with everybody. Um, different platforms do that. I've used a few different platforms that we've used in school where all that data is available so everybody can go and log on and see um the targets see the data see the things that they're working on and I think if it's going to be everybody's responsibility it's got to be transparent and shared shared with everybody I think that's a really important message and what would you say Bob from your experience yeah I mean I, I couldn't agree more <laughs> basically the <laughs> the challenge is always going to be getting out of the silo of the the EL specialist which it's 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 just so unfair, really, that, that the weight of all this falls on one person's shoulders when it, it, it should be a core part of teaching and learning across the school. Um, so that, you know, recording information really well is the first stage. The second stage, as Joe says, is getting anyone to actually look at it and to use it in their own professional activity, their own teaching. Um, we, we had a really lovely example um, in a case study that, that we published recently uh, by Christine McCormack in Glasgow and she she describes basically and it's in the context of new arrivals but it, it holds true across the year um are basically going around to classrooms saying right this is the people in your class this is what we know about them and and just making sure that people had it really right in front of them because people are so busy that that finding it on a you know a OneDrive or a, or a um, Google Google Docs link somewhere um it's just not going to get accessed. So I think good assessment is really part of good school processes that have bilingual learners at the heart. And there is there's a lot of important work that the EL person will do. And they are perhaps the linchpin of it all. But it's got to be across the school. So whatever the data routines are for all the other pupils in the school, it's got to be integrated. And one question you might ask your senior leadership team is, who is holding me accountable? Um, it's a bit. It feels like a bit of a double-edged sword in a way, doesn't it? That that we may be <laughs> quite like. I mean, I, I'm a university academic. I love the fact that I get very, very little management in my day to day. But but having someone on the senior team whose job it is to hold you accountable to manage you means that your work is also being reported on and being included in discussions at the top of the school. It counts. And. And you might have to articulate how to hold you accountable because people don't always know that. Um, but it just means that, that your work is part of what the school does and where your data is not showing up in the, in the school's data kind of management routines. It means someone is asking, oh, where's the EAL data? And that's so powerful for getting buy-in across the school. Well, something that's also linked um, to assessment and sort of following your assessment and your data is interventions. Um, and there's the old sort of question that keeps um, reappearing is whether to keep 
those students in class or take them out of class for support. And what would you say, Joe, about interventions from the assessment and how can they be used productively? I think it's such a hard one because everyone's got their own um, different opinions on it. I know some schools do, some schools don't. You've got to follow kind of what your school does. But for me, most of the time, those children are in are in class, they're in mainstream class. It's that quality first teaching. What is it that your school does and your teachers do and your um, support staff do that means that they're involved and engaged in the curriculum just as any other child you know all children have got needs and it's our job as teachers to meet those children's needs in everything that we're doing in the classroom so I think most of the time yes they're they're with you and that's what you should be doing there might be some um, cases where they're where they're not and if they're not then what are they you've really got to think about what they're missing um, because they're all entitled to the curriculum as is any child so um it's a tricky one, but I think if you've got that quality first teaching down across your school and all your staff, all your staff, not just the EAL person, not just the, the teachers, the support staff as well, um, lunchtime supervisors, everybody that's coming into contact with those children needs to know, um, you know, the sorts of strategies and the things that are effective and the things that they're responding to. Break time and lunchtime are one of the most challenging times for um, children, especially children new to learning English. Um, so I think, in my experience, it's vital that all of those people uh, are involved. It's not just down to the teachers. It's not just on the um, on the EAL lead. And it's not just um, lesson time either. School is such a... It's, it's so important for social interactions. Break the, the things that happen at break time and the things that happen at lunchtime. We all know as, as teachers that sets the tone. How those children come in from break and lunch, how they come in from um, from home in the morning, sets the tone for the rest of the day. And you know that you're not not going to get the learning that you want if children are coming in, you know, upset or they're frustrated about something that's happened. So those social times are the, are the key times. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's really important that everybody takes a takes their role in that, and it's up to it's up to us as to how we communicate that and how we ensure that those staff that um, have the information that they need. But it works much better from experience when they do. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, there's some brilliant um, interventions, sort of clubs, language clubs, and activities, and that goes on at lunchtime and after school. There's all we sorts of things. Facebook, all those. You know, there's all sorts of things, things. Yeah, that you can do. We used uh, games club, uh, languages club, homework club, um, but not just for um, EAL learn for all. You know, that's open for all children. We used to have library. We used to have the library open at lunchtime. Um, with a with someone in there all those different opportunities that you can that you can take and also just teaching children how to play together how to involve one another you know if they spot someone that's not being involved what do they do about that all those little tiny things um, all that has such a massive impact on how those children then come into your classroom after break and after lunch Um, so I don't yeah I think we should think about that as well as well as lessons yeah, what would you say, Rob, about interventions? I mean, I, I agree hugely. And, and what you said about working across the whole school day is so important. I mean, one of the really powerful things, I think, is the is the Young Interpreters Scheme that Hampshire MTAS have, have designed, that pupils are trained quite quickly and simply not to interpret our language, but to interpret 
the routines of the school and the culture of the school and what kids need to know and you know who to, who to spend time with and what's expected uh, so the young interpreter scheme is uh, is really cheap um, really effective and a great way to, to make sure that new arrivals particularly have got buddies even where you haven't got pupils that speak the same language um, just going back to um, that idea of should should pupils be in the mainstream we had quite a, quite a rich discussion of that in a in an online session we had recently. Um, the reason that I think it's so important is because that's where children are most likely to acquire the most language, and especially the most curriculum language. They've got access to the richest talk. They've got access to the most peer interaction. They've got access to the most authentic materials. So they're, they're going to get much, much more really useful curriculum language um, and language development in the mainstream classroom. So you can do it in withdrawal sessions. Um, but I mean, ideally, you, you want to have a clear sense of your purpose for that. So prioritizing um, mainstreaming means actually every teacher has responsibility for those pupils. Um, and ideally, a lot of your time as the EL specialist is helping your colleagues to include those pupils in their classroom rather than at the full default being that they, they come out with you if they are out with you we maybe want to be thinking about um who's providing materials so we want to make sure that that real classroom materials subject materials in secondary or, or the class materials in primary are being used and um, that there's a clear set of goals for that withdrawal that there's a time limit and a, and a set of criteria for what they'll achieve so they're ready to go back in or, or move on to another program um, that feels slightly idealistic sometimes, and, and um, I get a lot of pushback around this idea that, that kids should be in the mainstream. But I think, if I'm honest, I think it's a culture thing. We, we've come to accept that bilingual pupils shouldn't be in the mainstream classroom unless they have a very, very high level of English proficiency. But um, bilingual education around the world shows us that actually um, millions and millions of children learn in an education system where they're developing their proficiency in the medium of instruction. There's loads of things that we can do to, to include them more. Um, I just want to say why, why proficiency is so important, by the way. So we talked at the beginning about how you assess proficiency, and I've been saying, you know, get kids in the mainstream, that's why they'll learn the most. Proficiency in English is really robustly shown to be the number one driver of attainment across the curriculum. So for, for bilingual pupils, um, Race and ethnicity, gender, prior schooling, they don't account for nearly so much as the variation in children's, language, children's ultimate attainment as their proficiency in English does. And they are within spitting distance of the monolingual average attainment by the time they reach stage C in your scales of proficiency. That is to say, a good intermediate level of English. By the time they're getting up to stage D, E, that means they're much, much more proficient than English, which is where we'd hope all, all children are by, certainly by the beginning of key stage four, if they joined at the beginning of primary. Um, and which, if you join in, in reception, by the way, about a third of pupils who are new to English will be at stage D by the end of um, primary, almost all certainly by sort of year nine region. Um, that pupils at that higher stage routinely at all phases and in pretty much all subjects we have data for routinely outperform monolingual pupils. So there's, there's this other idea that, that why not have pupils in the mainstream classroom? Because they're, they're able to perform as 
pretty much as well on assessments at a, a relatively intermediate level of English. And they'll outperform their peers as their proficiency improves. So this idea that you've got to get them up to the level of their monolingual peers before they can be in the classroom is a real problem because actually the opposite should be true. You could, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but with, with the reasonable amount of data behind you, you should you could say that we need to hold our monolingual pupils back out of the multilingual classroom until they've developed their language skills because our bilingual pupil is going to be working at such a high standard that it's going to hold them back being in a monolingual classroom. I've not seen anyone make that argument on print. I can see uh, Joe and Helen's expression as I suggested. But look, I mean, it, it, it's worth thinking about because we know that, that high proficiency in English is going to drive attainment so well. They'll get the most exposed to language in the mainstream classroom. It's really hard to make it work, but I think you know, the, this is the, this is the what the evidence tells us, episode of the podcast, the evidence tells us it's a prize worth fighting for. It's definitely so true. I mean, in my GCC English classes, bilingual pupils often outperformed, um, you know, their monolingual peers. So it's definitely something to think about, isn't it? <laughs> something to take forward. Uh, so we've been asking on social media for your questions um, for this podcast. And knowing it was coming up, we've had four or five um, that we've picked out to talk about today. So our first question is from at Habs1967 on Twitter. And she asks, how do you support EAL children with interventions? They're not missing time in the classroom. So I know we've touched on that today, but what would you say to her about um, interventions and not missing out in the classroom? I think it goes back to that um, quality first teaching so that maybe you don't feel that, that you need to have as many interventions as perhaps you think that you do, if that makes sense. Um, if you've got that level of talk and that level of language in your classroom, which you, you're going to have, you, you're a teacher, that's what it's all about, then um, they, you know, they can be in the classroom a lot more probably than you think that they can be. Um, I would say be wary of um, how tired some of the children get sometimes when they are working um, between different languages and they're using all their languages. They're new to learning English. I've seen, um, you know, that's it's quite hard going um, and they do get quite tired. So think about how you can maybe provide a little bit of time or a space that they can maybe just have a little bit of a break. Um, from doing that because it's it's exhausting for them um, and I know I used to support some children and when they used to see me sometimes they used to just kind of be so happy to see me just for 10 minutes just to talk about things that weren't um, you know they'd come up to me on the playground and it'd just be a time where they could kind of maybe ask me I had some older children key stage two that would ask me things that I know they wouldn't ask their teacher in front of their in front of their peers because they knew that they should know the answer and, and they didn't. So that was a nice um, space for them to be able to do that. Um, but also just to have a bit of a break um, f from the hard work of the classroom when you are working in, in different languages, I think it's important to be to be mindful of that. Thanks, Jo. Um, and then Marketa on Facebook asks, how do you set targets for your students? So would you say that's just through the assessment systems or what would you, what's your advice on that one? Joe? So you start with what they start with, what they know, start with what they can do, start with what your assessment is, is showing you. You know, if you've done all that assessment, there's no point 
um, then not using it. So use it to inform your planning and, and your next steps. Um, where are they and where do they need to go next? And just when you're setting any targets for any child or for any adult, you need to make them achievable. They need to be small enough that they're going to be, um, yeah, that they can achieve them. And you need to break them down into in may, into different actions that are going to help you be able to achieve those targets, just as you would for any targets that you set children or adults I think I don't think it's I don't think we should see it as being any different what's good for children that are are bilingual multilingual is good for all it's good practice for all children right I think it's it should be should be the same I don't think it has to always I think it's easy to think of it in separate to separate it out and think think that we need to think about it differently actually I don't think we need to think about it that differently they might be working everyone's going to be working on a different target but that's just that's just the nature of having a class. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Joe. And the final one, um, Danny on Facebook's asked, should you assess all of your EAL students or is it just new arrivals? Rob, what would you say about that one? <laughs> yeah, all. Um, it used to be a statutory duty. We know from the evidence that there's, there's something funny happens at a couple of points. We, we often talk about stage DE, um, <laughs> together because actually they're not very well distinguished from each other it, 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 assessments tend to, to be a bit squirrely <laughs> around there and we also know there's a substantial drop in the number of bilingual pupils reported at the end of primary and the beginning of secondary so unless there's some phenomenally good language learning program that changes what your first language is that I've not heard about over the summer I think it's it's what happens is um, when, when pupils students arrive at secondary because they seem quite fluent they're being reclassified as non-eal there's a number of reasons not to do that even if they're highly fluent and and your assessment says they should be able to operate um at at a equivalent level throughout the curriculum the first bit of that is um you know we need to know if pupils are operating at a very high level if they drop off the system then then we don't have that evidence that can inform really high quality um provision i think more likely pupils are sounding fluent being reclassified um as non-eal or perhaps that data isn't being transferred they're just being classified um and then some of that really higher level language that's needed later in the curriculum particularly to get up to key stage four and gcses isn't being supported because people don't know it needs support so um i would assess all EL students all the way through their school careers. That used to be what was briefly expected of us. And I think it's still best practice Um, at the very least. So, you know, you know, is your work working? Yeah. Yeah. Are they making progress? Um, Thank you. I think that's everything on the EAL and assessment. Um, We've got some events coming up as well for the EAL community. Rob, do you want to share your events that are coming up? Yes, so I was I was asked to to put together a couple of uh, workshops, uh, a little first one, and then a Q and A Q&A session to follow. Um, we had like triple fingers figures numbers of people coming to the first session. We thought there'd be about four, so we're <laughs> sort of <laughs> delighted and stunned. <laughs> Great, um, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it just speaks it speaks to the the demand out there. Um, the second session is at 3.30 p.m. to 5 p.m. on Tuesday, the 22nd of November. So coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, bring your questions, uh, bring your queries. We'll, we'll try and work through them with you. We'll put the link to that 
to sign up in uh, in the show description, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Really, really. And, and if you want to, so the, the registration form asks you any questions you want to submit. Um, you're welcome to write in there. I can't come to this session, but I'd really like to stay in touch. It looks like we're definitely going to need to organise some more things in the future. Yeah. So you could just use that registration form as well just to stay in touch with us if you'd like to. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, and we've got our um, EL Network meeting on the 22nd as well, but it's half seven till 8 p.m. Um, and anyone that comes getting 15% discount on their Twinkle membership. So hopefully we'll get um, oh, that... some people coming to that as well, the network meeting. That reminds me, not, not to go discount for discount, Helen, but the, the one that I'm organising, if you come along, <laughs> the publisher has offered a 40% discount on my book. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I really want to shout um, that, Rob. You need to I'll share that one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not very good at self publicising No, I have to do a lot of it for you, Rob, I have sure. to say. <laughs> I, sure, uh, you want to be Rob's agent? <laughs> well, my like, mortgage like is a, going up, funnily enough. I feel like a cut price Rory Stewart. Let's <laughs> start talking about our readers. All right. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yes, no, so, brilliant. So much going on for the Yale community at the moment. It's really exciting times. Uh, thank you both, as always. Um, the next episode coming up will be looking at language across the curriculum and translanguaging. So please send your questions in before then. Um, and this episode will be out on the 25th of November. So we will hear from you after that. Thank you both. This thank, you. thank you. Take care. Bye. We have over 650,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL.